Um, we're going to read um, from Daniel chapter 3, verse 19 now. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his ch- face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered that the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire even killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and all three men fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of God's. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not, um, had, had, not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads had not been singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants. You trusted in him and set aside the king's commands and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree... Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid to ruin, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. It's the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and uh, welcome. I'm Jeremy, I'm one of the leaders here. Thanks for joining us, whether you're tuning in online or whether you've made the effort to come and be here with us in the building. We're heading through a great series, which, uh, as uh, Mark mentioned, is on the book of Daniel, which we're calling A Field Guide to Life in Exile. It's a, a letter written to God's people who are not living in their homeland and they're living in a foreign land with a worldview that is not, uh, I guess, friendly to their own. And we are digging into this chapter that Mark just read out for us in Daniel chapter 3. And we're going to see that worshipping the living God means being all in. But before we get there, just a couple of things to to draw your attention to. If you're wanting to follow along with the readings week to week that are going to get you into God's Word day by day and you don't have a booklet with you, there are some spares up the back if you wanted to grab one of those. They're great to dive into. I was reminded this week as I was looking in Psalm 78, the psalmist talks about how the generations that follow Jesus, that follow the living God, are going to pass on the stories about who God is to the next generation. 
And as Mark mentioned before, we've got a great team of City Kids workers here who are passing on the gospel to the next generation. And if that's a ministry that you'd like to be a part of, I mean, thank you for everyone who's, who's jumped in on it as we've kind of spread out that ministry as it grows, as there are more and more kids about. But if that's something you'd like to be a part of, we would love to hear from you. And the person to speak to is Anne, who's also my mum. She's just over here. Yep. So uh, if you wanted to know about being a part of our, our Next Gen Ministries here, she's the one to speak to. But today we're going to talk about this call for the people of God, as it has always been, to worship God and worship God alone, to be all in for this God. Because it is the case that there are, there are a few things in life where it's, it's okay to take the approach of kind of just gently making your way in. If you, if you are camping somewhere, if that's your thing, I don't know, if you, if you are that kind of person, I don't know what kind of person that is, but uh, if you're a camping person and you happen upon a waterhole and you have no idea what's beneath the surface, it's quite reasonable and even safe to make your way slowly in, to kind of dip your toe in, then your legs, and then, and then sort of safely make your way into the water. But then there are other instances where it's actually more dangerous to half commit. And this was never more obvious than when at our swimming carnival in high school, a few of the lads decided that they were going to try for the first time without any training or any lead up to jump from the 12 meter diving board. And all of them, because they'd psyched themselves up before the event, once they were there, everyone had to do it. And one of the guys in particular had been, had been talking a big game before getting there. And so by the time it was the day, no matter what happened, he was going to be jumping off that diving board. But when he got up there, I imagine, just looking by what happened, that uh, 12 meters was somewhat bigger than he'd anticipated. He hadn't thought that it was the kind of distance where you could have a few thoughts on the way down, even a few sentences. And so when he got up there, he panicked. And so he thought the way that he could kind of honor his commitment to, to follow through on this, um, but also kind of safely do it, would be to sort of lower himself kind of halfway with his legs dangling over the side and belly laid across the platform and then sort of push off safely. And of course, all of you are anticipating exactly what was the result. By the time he hit the water, he was perfectly, he had as much surface to area volume ratio as he possibly could, spread himself out. And there was, the, the impact was so big, it felt, uh, there wasn't, but it felt like there were shock waves coming off. And he took a while just to sit in the cold water to let the burns kind of, you know, just settle in and then sort of gradually make his way humbly out of the pool. But 12-meter diving is one of those things where you're better off being all in or all out. Skydiving, skateboarding, any kind of adrenaline sport is probably about the same, but it's not just that. There are lots of things in life where you really either need to be all in or all out. And worship is one of those things. You can't half-worship God. We can't worship him a bit. And for one very simple reason, here's a really clear definition of what worship is. Worship is how you respond to the most valuable thing in your life. And everybody does it. Everybody has one thing that they treasure and prize above all other things, the thing that they believe will make them most happy. And whatever that thing is, your life will be organized around that thing. You will worship it. And there is no way to half-worship. So by that definition, you can only worship one thing. If you want to say, look, God is important to me, but so are relationships, the question becomes, well, when there's a clash, who wins? Or if you want to say, God is important to me, but so is succeeding in my career, but when there's a clash, who wins? 
You might want to say, God is important to me, but so is security and stability. But when there's a clash, who wins? Because whoever wins, that's what you worship. Whoever wins, that's what you worship. And what we're going to see in this passage is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get it. They get it that to worship God means being all in, and they go all in. And we see what happens. We're going to see three men who are all in for God who refuse to compromise. And so here's where we're going to be going today. We're going to see that King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the most powerful man in the world at that time, the ruler of the Babylonian Empire, he's going to try to get his people to worship something else. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are then going to refuse. And then God is going to demonstrate himself to be the only God who can really save. That's where we're heading today. I'm going to pray that God would be opening our hearts and minds as we open his word today. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are a good God who reveals to us yourself in your word. And this morning as we open Daniel 3, may we see that you're a God who is worthy of all our worship. May we be all in and see that it's for our joy that we would worship what is worthy of our worship. We pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, you would have seen that Nebuchadnezzar, who was a king whose empire was really uncontested at the time, he had a dream that God gave him, and it shook his world to the core. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't rest. He threatened everyone. Someone needs to tell me what this dream is. Daniel comes through with it. And then at the end of that, we see Nebuchadnezzar confess, my gosh, you must really worship the true and living God. And then we're one sentence later, and he's already setting up a statue saying, worship this. And you might be thinking, how could that possibly happen? How could it be that someone would have such a, a profound moment, a spiritual experience, where they confess that God is the God of the universe, and then the very next moment be setting up a statue and saying, worship this thing like it's a God? But the truth is, we do have short memories, don't we? And maybe you've experienced it yourself, or you've seen it, but it can be the case, and is frequently even sadly the case, that people have profound experiences that they can attribute to no one else other than God, only to later leave it alone. A near-death experience where they miraculously survive. A terminal illness where they're miraculously healed. And suddenly they're feeling like, gosh, this God who I kind of reached out to desperately has answered my prayers. He must really be the God. Only to kind of fall back into the rhythms of life and really forget about him. And so here we see a king, Nebuchadnezzar, who has had a miraculous intervention in his life, but has already forgotten about it. And now he sets up this statue. And look what he does. In Daniel 3, 1 to 7, we read this. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and whose breadth was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, that you are to fall down, 
and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples had heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So he sets up this image of gold, and it's about 10 stories high in modern terms. It's this massive image. So huge amounts of work and money have gone into this thing. But we're not told what it is. It could just be a giant block. Because if you're king of the known world at the time, you can do some pretty terrible art, and everyone's going to gather around and say, wow, that's amazing. You did such a good job. And you see that that's what he does. He gets the magistrates, the this, the that. Everyone has to gather around to this statue that he's made and be like, wow, King Nebuchadnezzar, that's so cool. Please don't kill me. You're great at art. And so everybody's lauding this thing that he's done there. But in case you, in case you missed it, there is a sarcastic tone to this passage. That's right, ancient Near Eastern texts also did sarcasm. Because as you read it, it's, it's annoying to read, isn't it? You have to repeat over. If you read the whole chapter, you're going to read the horn, the pipe, the light, the bag. Who knew the bagpipe was there, right? That's, that's a really kind of Scottish flavor to it, right, in an ancient Near Eastern culture. But you have to read the same thing over and over again. Do you know why? Because it's mocking King Nebuchadnezzar. It's like how tedious and how overdrawn despots can be how, how annoying it is and how self-aggrandizing they can be and you know what dictators are often still this way aren't they they can be petty and childish they're so self-aggrandizing and they have to get so many people to come together and to worship them that it is tedious and arduous and so the passage is written to give you that sense as you repeat these things over and over again it's tiresome which is exactly what being a member of his kingdom would have been. Tiresome. God here is mocking King Nebuchadnezzar and his little golden statue. Do you know that God laughs and God does mock? But he doesn't mock the people that we often mock, the marginalized, the poor, the outcast, the vulnerable. Now in Psalm 2, 1-3, we're told that the kings of the earth set themselves up And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. But he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The Lord laughs at rulers who think they're all powerful. Rulers like Nebuchadnezzar, who set up statues and think that they're incredible. God is not impressed by petty emperors. And this passage is a tone of mockery. It's as if God is saying, look at his cute little statue. Have you ever made a planet that could produce enough gold to create a statue as big as your entire empire? Because I have. That's cute, Nebuchadnezzar, that you set this up and that you think you're pretty impressive. But history is going to forget you. And so Nebuchadnezzar in this passage is mocked. But there's also something else that's interesting in here. We're not really told what this image is. It says it's an image made of gold. And yeah, it could, it could just literally be kind of a giant rectangle or something like that. We have no idea. But the reason for it is that it's meant to, for the Jewish reader, remind you of another really significant passage in the Old Testament. Just listen to this from Exodus 23 to 5, the beginning of the Ten Commandments. It says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image 
or anything, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Just keep that in mind and now read Daniel 3, sentence 5 with me. It says that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. He wants them to directly contravene the first commandment. He sets up an image. God says, you shall have no images. He wants them to bow down. He says, you shall not bow down. He wants them to worship it. And God says, you will worship no other gods. King Nebuchadnezzar is, is putting them in a position. He's saying, you're going to have to either worship your God like he says you are too, or you're going to do what I say. And so they're in a bind. But they refuse to do it. And then, look what happens. A bunch of jealous officials come together and they figure this is their chance to get one up on Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Look what it says in Daniel 3, 8 to 12. It says, Therefore at that time, certain Chaldeans, so Babylonians, came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the, it's, it's going to keep coming back, right? The horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of, of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. <laughs> this passage is meant to be depicting these people as, as little brown noses. Look at them come up, look at them come up to the king and say, Oh king, live forever. You're so amazing. And may I just say again how great your artwork is and all the bagpipes and everything that's playing all at once. It sounds amazing. King, you're so grand. He says, But there are some people in Babylon who don't think you're that great. These guys don't worship your gods. They, don't even, they pay no attention to you at all. They're meant to be here just sniveling, jealous, conniving. And of course, the king gets mad. They knew he would. He's easy to set off and he's furious. He flies into a rage. He says, all right, bring them to me. But just compare now their response to the response of those around them. Look at what they say in Daniel 3, 16 and 17. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Their response is respectful, but it's calm. They're not over the top with, this, with praise for this king. They're deferential. They're not mocking but they quietly say, we're not going to do what you tell us to. King, you rule over this province. If you're going to throw us into a furnace, that's your business. But we're not going to worship your gods. And our God is powerful to save, but he hasn't promised to save. So even if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship your gods. The response has integrity. It's calm. Unlike those sniveling counselors around him who are trying to get one up and to advance their careers... They just calmly say, we're going to refuse, even if that means our lives. And just think in this moment what they could have done. They could have said, well, look, 
God's the real God, and we know that. He's the God of the universe, and we know that in our hearts. So outwardly, we can bow down to this statue because we know in our hearts that we're really the followers of God. But they didn't. They said, we're not going to do it. We're not going to bow down, and we're not going to give deference to this God or gods or whatever he's trying to set up. We're not going to do what he says. And if that means our lives, then so be it. So how does Nebuchadnezzar respond? Does he say, you know what, guys, fair call. You, like, that's honestly, I mean, you came from a foreign nation. I get it. That seems reasonable to me. No, of course, he flies off the handle. It says Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. So he had that, that surge of almost white-hot adrenaline when something makes you furious. It has got right under his skin that these three people think they can defy the most powerful man in the world at the time. And he flies off the handle. It says the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. So he wants them to feel his rage. These people have defied his sovereign power, and now he wants to say, this is what happens when you cross me. Turn the furnace up seven times what it was previously. You're going to feel the wrath of my fury. And you think this kind of threat is no idle threat. Death by fire is a horrible way to kill someone. And it's meant to be a demonstration of how vicious an empire or ruler can be. ISIS, during their brief but brutal reign as a nation state, would take to burning alive foreign soldiers who were captured and in their power as a demonstration of how ruthless they would be to anyone who opposed their sovereign rule. It was meant to terrify and to frighten people. So this is no, no insignificant moment in the book of Daniel. They're being threatened with, with a horrific fate. It's terrifying. And so it's with no small faith that the three of them have said, you know what, we're still not going to do it. We're not going to bow down and we're not going to do what you say. And so they are sent to the fire. It's heated it up seven times. It's so hot, in fact, that those who are taking them up to be burned are in fact killed themselves and they fall into the fire. And then, of course, something astonishing happens. In Daniel 3, 24 to 25, this is what we see. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered the king and said, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So they're in the fire and completely unharmed. And the king almost gets up from his position. He's like, am I, am I seeing things correctly? Not only are they not perishing, but it's not just three in there. There seems to be a fourth there among them. Now some have kind of proposed that maybe this is, this is an echo of Jesus, or maybe this is Jesus with them, someone who is in human form and yet with his people. And certainly the book of Daniel prophesies that many years later there will be a son of God, and that's a name that Jesus takes upon himself in direct connection with the book of Daniel to say that these prophecies are about me. And, it's, and we're told that this son of God is one who will rule God's kingdom forever. And so it's, not, it's no kind of sideways thing to think that there are links to Jesus in the book of Daniel. 
But I'd say it's probably unlikely that this is a, a manifestation of Jesus. This is kind of some, some you know, pre-show before the main event sort of coming up. But what it is a demonstration of is that God's messenger and angel, God is with them in the fire protecting them. That it's clear that this didn't just happen by some strange coincidence. This is God intervening in the natural laws of his creation to demonstrate his significant and unique protective power for his people. He looks after them. He protects them. And Nebuchadnezzar can't believe it. So they come out of the fire and they are unsinged. They don't even smell of smoke. And it's a miraculous salvation. And then we read this in Daniel 3, 28 to 30. It says, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speak anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruin. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Doesn't Nebuchadnezzar just strike you as an impulsive king? He's just so, it's just one thing, he's a bullet a gate, he's one thing and then another. In one moment, he's like, you know what, anyone who defies me is going to be thrown into the furnace. Then they survive and he's like, you know what, anyone who talks trash about their, their God, I'm going to tear him limb from limb. He, just, he was not a safe person to be around. But true to form, it's known throughout other historical sources that Nebuchadnezzar was a ruthless king. And so it's in keeping with his character that he would be this brutal and this kind of impulsive. But at this point, you just think, mate, just, just take a minute. Just have a panel and a lie down, think it through, and then maybe write some policies up together with a team. But instead, he's floored by this, and so he now starts breathing threats against anyone who would say anything against their God. But the thing that's meant to stand out to us most is what he says right at the end. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not compromise. They trusted him and they set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god rather than their own god. This is meant to be the encouragement to God's people. The encouragement to God's people that they don't worship no God other than the true and living God. That there is one God who can really save and that they are to follow Him. Not to yield up their bodies to serve any other would-be God, but to worship the true and living God, the one who can really save. And aren't there echoes of Jesus in this? When Jesus walked on earth, He walked through fire with His people. He suffered. We're told he was a man of sorrows. He was beaten, mocked, scorned. He experienced it. And unlike this story, he was not unaffected by it. Jesus wasn't kind of a, a God sort of wrapped in, in a, a human costume who kind of breezed through unharmed. Jesus felt everything that we have felt. He suffered in this world with us. And not only that, but his time was finished with the most incredible and acute suffering you could imagine. He faced the fire of the wrath of God on our behalf. And he did this so that now his people would be able to walk through death unsinged. This story really is an echo of the greater gospel story that God is a God who really saves. 
a God who can be trusted, one who is worth going all in with because He is the only one who can save. And God guards His people. And God builds His church. Jesus was the one who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Just as He guarded His people in Babylon, He guards His people, the church, now and builds it Himself. And so the call then is to be followers of Jesus who are all in. As we were reflecting last week, I was talking with Gav about our early days of doing youth ministry together. I mean, some of the things, the, the youth events and things that we ran were just so cringeworthy. It's hard to even like go back over some of those memories. But every now and then we landed on something that was okay. But I remember the first, the first ever youth talk I gave, the first ever, I guess, Bible talk that I ever gave, was called Don't Be a 50 Cent Christian. That was partly because 50 Cent was at the height of his career. <laughs> it was before he was bankrupt. So I was, you know, it's kind of in with the people. But um, the illustration I gave was this. And look, you can take it or leave it. But I said, um, imagine, imagine, you were, imagine you were hungry and thirsty at the same time. Not hard to imagine. Most people have been in that position. And let's imagine that it was, I don't know, the 1930s or something when everything cost a dollar. And you just got a dollar. There's a drinks machine, a drink costs a dollar, and then there's a, um, uh, like a chips machine, and chips cost a dollar. And because you're hungry and thirsty at the same time, you put 50 cents in one machine and 50 in the other. I said, that's what it's like to be half in for Jesus. When you're like, I kind of like some of the stuff about Jesus, but I kind of like some of the stuff about how the world does things, so I'm going to sort of put a bet each way. And when you do that, what happens? You lose out on both. The 50-cent Christian, as I put it at the time, really loses out in both ways. You feel the guilt of kind of living for the world and in rebellion to Jesus, and then at the same time, not the joy of being wholeheartedly for Him. There's no way to live. The call from Daniel 3 is that the people of God throughout time have been all in for their God, and He will not disappoint to be all in for Jesus. So here's a question for you. Where do you feel the pressure to kind of hedge your bets a bit, to fit in? Is it at work where you feel like you kind of really need to talk a certain way or act a certain way to one of the crew? Or is it, is it in a group of friends where you kind of feel like a little bit like you're punching above your weight and you can't afford to reveal anything about yourself that might drop your credit or status with them because you kind of feel like you're a little bit lucky to be hanging with them anyway? And so you either just keep quiet about the things about Jesus or being a Christian that might compromise your position, or you speak in such a way in order to be accepted or to be a part of the crowd that you're in. Is there a group of parents that when you're around them, you just feel like, I, I don't want to say anything that's going to make them think I'm one of those weirdo Christians. I'm not going to say anything wrong, but I'm just I'm going to keep that part of my life as far off to the side as I possibly can. The pressure has been there right since Babylon to be half in for God. And yet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were vindicated by being all in for their God. They worshipped Him wholeheartedly, and He did not disappoint. And the problem with being half and half is this. If you really are saved, you miss out on what it's like to live all in for Jesus. Just think, about, just think about a dad who has kids 
but is constantly thinking about all the things he used to be able to do before he was tied down with kids. There's that, like, not to drop Simpsons on you, I very rarely do it. There's this line where Homer's kind of reminiscing about the time when he was, you know, without kids, and he said, I used to have money. What is it? No. No, now I have, now I have three kids and no money. I used to have no kids and three money, right? <laughs> Which is a great way to think about it. But imagine being, imagine being a dad who has kids. There's no way to change that. You've got the kids, but the whole time you're thinking about all the freedoms that you used to have. What's going to happen to you? He's going to miss out on the moments that are there to enjoy. He's going to miss out on the season that he's in and the dad he could be constantly just thinking, oh, would life be better if I was doing something else? To be half in for Jesus is like that. To be constantly thinking, oh, maybe what if I just did it this way or that or the other? Now the call of Daniel 3 is to be all in. But the other risk is this, that to be half in might be papering over the fact that you're not in at all. You're actually not really convinced that Jesus, that real joy is found in Jesus. And actually you're kind of hedging your bets because you think, to be honest, if I really put all my chips on Jesus, it's probably a losing bet. Those who are living half in and half out are in the most pain or the most danger. The call here is to live wholeheartedly for God, for He will not disappoint. And not only that, the promise of this passage is that He will be with you through the fire. The God of the cross is the one who is with His people till the end. Jesus was not half in for you. He was all in. We have a God who loves us with an everlasting love who knows us, who guides us, who understands our personalities, our context, and the unique pressures that you're facing this week, and he loves you through them. The call is to worship God and to be all in with him. It's for our joy and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are kind, good, generous, just, righteous. And Father, we thank you that you know us Do you know what we're going through? The pressures that we face? The fears that we wrestle with? Father, we just pray that by your Spirit and your Word, you would just overwhelm us with a sense of your love toward us in Jesus. We just had a deep sense of the wrath that he bore for us. And as that is a deep demonstration of your love for us in Jesus, may it overwhelm us that we might trust you with all our heart, with every decision, with all our life, that you might be glorified in our lives and that we might find deep and abiding joy in you. Father, we pray all of this that we might have the peace of Christ abide among us for the sake of your name. Amen.